0: Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16. Our first text this morning is going to be from verses 13 to 20, so we'll, we'll start there and, uh, and read this passage together and uh, begin considering our, t- our study from the Lord's Word this morning. So let's begin in verse 13, reading down to verse number 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say? to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're blessed to be gathered to consider your word. We would ask that you would help us to set aside any distractions and to focus on what you have for us this morning. Because your word is truth and it sanctifies our hearts and our lives and our minds, we ask that we would give it the proper attention that it deserves this morning. For it's in Christ's name, amen. So, we're continuing this morning with the series that we began last week on the topic of church membership. And this sermon today is really going to lay the groundwork for uh, studies to come in the, the coming weeks. Uh, so, this will still be somewhat foundational, uh, but it is uh, an important passage and topic for us to consider as we, uh, as we look here this morning. Now, we began last week asking the question, is church membership in the Bible? And we noted that this is the most important question to consider, because if we can establish that church membership is, in fact, biblical, then it really answers all other objections, right? Because if it's biblical, then it's our responsibility to submit to the scriptures From there, it's only a matter of, okay, well, let's find out then what church membership is and how do I join, uh, because we've established that the Bible actually teaches and, and, and emphasizes this concept. And so we always want to start with what the Bible says and then filter our experiences through the grid of Scripture. And so we began with this question, and we considered several passages of Scripture in our first study. And in doing so, we made six arguments from the Bible that, that membership is, is a biblical concept. And I'll just briefly read these, uh, these points. You'll be reminded of them that we studied last week. Uh, so we began by noting that the early church kept lists and records indicating that there was knowledge of who belonged to the church. We saw this in Acts 2, Acts 4, uh, 1 Timothy 5. We saw, secondly, that church decisions assume a knowledge of who belonged to the church. So in Acts chapter 6, when they're choosing the first deacons, the instruction is choose from among you. And so they had a knowledge of of who was present or who was was part of their, uh, their assembly. Thirdly, we saw that the practice of church discipline assumes knowledge of who is in and out. Paul's instruction is you should set this man outside of your assembly, and the implication of that passage is that there is an in and an out to, uh, to the local church. Fourthly, we saw that the command for believers to submit to their leaders assumes a formal relationship between a Christian and a church. So Hebrews 13, chapter 17 encourages believers to submit to their leaders as they give account for them. And so we, uh, we, we assume there that there is a, a formal relationship that exists between the leadership and, and, and those following and, and, and this assumes the practice of, of, church, of church membership. On the flip side of that, we said, number five, that the fact that pastors will give an account for those under their care assumes a formal relationship so that pastors know for whom they're, they're giving care and watch and account before the Lord. And then lastly, we summed it up and just said that the one and other passages in the New Testament are practiced most effectively in a context of church membership, where believers know for whom they're responsible to practice these one-another commands. And after considering these arguments from Scripture, here's what we concluded. At the very least, we can say that a formal relationship existed between a church and an individual Christian and that both the church and the individual Christian were aware of this relationship and the responsibilities that came with it, okay? So whether you call it membership, whether you call it partnership, whether you call it by some other name, there seems to be in Scripture that this formal relationship exists and that both the church and the individual are aware of this relationship. Now, up to this point, all we did was was establish the fact of membership, that membership existed in the scriptures. And so then from there, we went on to begin then to define what membership is. And we began with this definition and said that membership is a formal relationship, or we might use the term a covenant of union between a particular church and a Christian. And then we had a cliffhanger last week, we said that consists of three other aspects, but we didn't go into what those three aspects were. And we began by emphasizing this this formal relationship or this covenant and, and just I encourage us to, to think about this formal relationship of church membership like like marriage. All right, in the sense that we commit before we fully know the flaws and the idiosyncrasies. We we stick with it even when things get difficult. We commit our, our time and our energy and our resources to, to make it work. We commit, focusing on what we can give, not on what we can get. And we relate to our church family differently than we relate to all other believers outside of our church family, much like the marriage relationship. And so this is kind of all that we discussed last week, beginning by looking at this formal relationship that exists between believers Uh, that often goes by the title Church Membership. Now, with these thoughts in mind, we move into our second study this morning on the role of and importance of church membership in the church. So I want to begin by asking a question this morning. And I want you to answer in your mind. Don't answer out loud, okay? That'll be important because it could be controversial if you answer out loud. All right, so here's the question. Agree or disagree? If you call yourself a Christian, but you are not a member of the local church you regularly attend, you might be going to hell. Do you agree with that statement, or do you disagree with that statement? So I'll read it again. If you call yourself a Christian, but you are not a member of the local church you regularly attend, you might be going to hell. Now, I recognize this is a provocative statement question, right? It's intended to elicit a certain feel or response from you. And surprisingly, I'm going to let you know up front that I agree with the statement that is is made. But I'll explain more by the the end of our study why this particular statement, I think, is is a true statement. Once we've had a chance to walk through scripture, we'll come back to this at at the end. Now, our study this morning, what we want to do is unpack the second aspect of our definition. Okay? So we saw first that membership is a formal relationship or a covenant between a particular church and a Christian that consists of three things. And we want to go into the first thing this morning, and it, it, it is this, okay? So it's a formal relationship that consists of, number one, the church's affirmation of the Christian's gospel profession. Okay, so this is the first aspect of membership. A formal relationship that consists of the church's affirmation of the Christian's gospel profession. So when a local church brings someone into their membership, here is what they're saying to the individual. They are saying, and here's what we are saying when we bring someone into membership, as far as we can tell, based on your profession of faith and your walk of obedience, we would affirm and recognize you to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. At which time, then, the church happily welcomes the individual into their membership. On the flip side, when a church has to remove a member for living an unrepentant sin, here's what they're saying to the individual. As far as we can tell, based on your profession of faith or your lifestyle, we can no longer affirm that you're a genuine follower of Christ. And we can no longer keep you as a member of this local church, and at which time the church sadly removes individuals from their membership. Now this is our practice, and this is the practice of other local churches like ours. But the question is this. Is the practice biblical? Okay. Does a church have the authority to make such pronouncements? Can or should a church say to a professing believer, we do or do not recognize your profession as valid? And where does the church get this authority to affirm or deny someone's profession of faith? Should we continue to practice this or should we repent and abandon this practice? Well, this is the focus of our study this morning. Does the church have the authority to affirm and deny someone's profession of faith and if so where does she get such authority now to answer this question we want to turn to a handful of scripture passages and we have to make some observations about these passages and then lord willing we'll tie it all together at the end so the first passage we're considering is is the passage we just read in matthew chapter 13 now perhaps you've had this experience that i've had where you've read through certain passages of scripture and you've had this thought I'm not sure what this passage means. And I really need to dig into this in a little more detail. But maybe you don't have the time, and so you never dig into it in more detail, and so you kind of remain ignorant, and the next time you read that passage, you're like, oh yeah, I need to, need to dig into this passage a little bit more. Or maybe you start to dig into the passage, and you're struck by how many different opinions there are in the passage, and the, the meaning of the passage, and the explanations, they don't seem clear, And so you just sort of throw up your hands and you give up and you walk away from the passage. Well, Matthew 16 is is one of those types of passages this morning. okay, We read in Jesus' words in verse 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we're like, all right, we, we like that. We understand that and we're all for that. But then we keep reading in verse 19, And it's like we see that Jesus is going to give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever is bound on earth and loosed on earth is bound or loosed in heaven. And we think, I have no idea what that means. I should go back and study that in more detail and then we never do. Or we do study it and we find the interpretations are all over the map. And so we're like, okay, I'll just give up. But Matthew 16 is an important passage in our discussion for church membership today. I mean, it's important for other reasons. It's important because it's the Word of God. And it's also important because this is only one of two places where Jesus talks about the church. But most importantly for our discussion today, this is a passage that has implications for church membership. And so we want to consider this passage uh, by uh, by way of starting this morning. So what is this passage in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, saying? Well, in this passage, you'll see that Jesus is having an intimate conversation with his disciples. And he's discussing how the crowds perceive him and his ministry. So he asks them, you'll see in verse 13, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answer in verse 14, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And I don't think they mean like, that Jesus is a resurrected prophet, but I think what they mean is, well, Jesus has a ministry like John the Baptist, or a ministry of preparation like Elijah, or a ministry of judgment like Jeremiah, or some other prophet. And, and, and these, these views of Jesus and these responses of Jesus, these are compliments These are are good things that people are seeing in the ministry of Jesus. But but while they're good, they're not accurate. Jesus is more than just a prophet. So Jesus then presses his disciples a little bit in this passage in verse 15. And he says, but but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with this. You are the Christ Christ. The Son of the Living God. Verse 16. Now, for as many times as Peter sticks his foot in his mouth for being the first one to to respond in, in many of Jesus' questions and discussions, he gets this one right. Okay? He gets the identity of Jesus correct. And for this response, Jesus gives this blessing and praise to Peter in verse 17. Look at verse 17. He says, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven." Now pause there for a second and recognize this that whatever this passage teaches us about the church, about the keys, about binding and loosing, there's one important part that this passage teaches or one important truth, that I think is, is, is very clear: that Peter made a proper confession of who Christ was, not because Peter was more intelligent, not because Peter was more observant than the other disciples. Rather, this confession was enabled and revealed to him by God. And just as a side truth in this passage, we know that any time someone makes a right profession of who Christ is, it did not originate in their own mind and will, but it was revealed by the grace of God. He opens eyes and allows us to see the beauty of Christ and who he is. Well, from here, Jesus continues in verses 18 and 19. And he says this. He's continuing to, to speak here in this blessing of Peter. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is going to build his church. Satan's not going to prevail against it. Okay? Jesus is going to build his church. On, on Peter? Maybe. And he's going to give the keys of the kingdom. To Peter? Perhaps. It at least seems like it in this passage. But as we read verses 18 and 19, a few questions emerge from this passage. And you're like, no kidding. All right, I've got lots of questions about this passage. So let's address a couple. All right? First question is this. On whom is Jesus going to build the church? Well, it seems pretty straightforward when he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, Okay, the word rock is the Greek word Petros. Also, Peter's name means rock. You are Peter. Just like Peter said, you are Christ. Now, Christ says, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. So Jesus is going to build his church on Peter. But the question is, does Jesus have something more in mind when he says, on this rock, I will build my church? And I think the answer is yes. And the reason he's building his church on Peter is not simply because of who Peter is, but I think it's connected to what Peter has just confessed. Okay, So he's building it on Peter, but he's really building it on Peter because of what Peter just confessed. Okay, One author helpfully says this. He says, Peter cannot be separated from his confession, and the confession cannot be separated from Peter. So Jesus says, so who do people say, who do you say they have? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it right. And on you and, and on your confession, I'm going to build my church. Now, Peter will play a significant role as the church is built, as you go into the book of Acts. But I think what we also see is ultimately the church will be built on all who confess rightly as to who Christ is just like Peter did. Okay, so, so that's the first question. Second question, what are the keys of the kingdom and to whom are they given? Now, it's unclear at this point what the keys are, right? Jesus sort of just throws this out there. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we're like, okay, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. And because of this, there's been much speculation and controversy throughout history. Now, I'm going to also say that it's not clear who receives the keys. Peter certainly receives them, but Peter may be representing the apostles who also receive them. But then moving forward, we're going to see more about the keys. So I, I'd say it's unclear at this point what the keys of the kingdom are and to whom they are given. And lastly, a question is this. What do these keys do? Well, we're told that whatever is bound or loosed on earth is also bound and loosed in heaven and that this is what the keys do. But you're like, okay, that doesn't help me because I don't know what this expression of binding and loosing means in heaven and on earth. And so looking at Matthew 16, we should conclude that we lack a level of clarity as to all that's involved in what Jesus is saying in this passage. We do know Jesus is going to build his church. We do know Satan's not going to prevail against it. We do know Peter's involved. We do know there are keys involved that bind and loose. But we come away from it thinking, well, the meaning of this passage is a little bit ambiguous. And so we have this wish. If only there was a passage that gave us more clarity on Matthew 16 that we could consider to to help us. Well, we're in, I won't say we're in luck, we're under divine providence this morning, that there is another passage that helps us understand this. Turn over just a couple pages to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And pick up with me in verses 15 and following. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that everything, every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now listen to this. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, so this is the second place of two where Jesus mentions the church. Now, Peter is not mentioned here, nor are the keys of the kingdom mentioned specifically, but we do have this binding and loosing language that we find in verse 18 that we also found back in Matthew chapter 16. And I will submit this is most assuredly a reference to the keys of the kingdom. And I'm not aware of anyone who says that these two passages, Matthew 18 and Matthew 16, are not connected and talking about the same things. So in this passage, Jesus is giving instruction on the practice of church discipline. You know this, and we're going to come to this in a couple of weeks, but he encourages a four-step process. If your brother has sinned against you, there's the one-to-one confrontation. That's step number one. If he doesn't turn in repentance, then you're to bring other witnesses to establish the the unrepentance of the individual. Step number three is you're to tell it to the church, and the church is to call the individual to repentance. And then step number four is Is to be set outside of the membership regarded as an unbeliever. That would be referred to as the practice of excommunication. Now, important for our discussion on this idea of the keys and membership and the church and all these things, we're particularly interested in steps three and four. So once the process fails at step one and two, Well, then it's to be brought before the church, and if the unrepentant sinner fails to respond to the church, he is to be set outside of the church and regarded as an unbeliever. But then Jesus says this in verse 18 Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, where did we hear that language of binding and loosing on earth and heaven? Well, back in Matthew 16. That's what the keys of the kingdom do. They bind and loose. So listen, if we want to know how the keys of the kingdom function, at least in part, Matthew chapter 18 tells us they function to set unrepentant sinners outside of the assembly to regard them as an unbeliever. Okay? This is at least a part of what the keys do. And part of what the binding and loosing is, it's to set a person who's unrepentant outside of the church. Now, we have some more questions here about this passage, right? So let's ask a couple more. Now, as we look at Matthew 18, here's our question. Who holds the keys? Okay, if Matthew 16 was our only passage on this topic, we would assume... Much like the Roman Catholic Church, that Peter is the one who holds the keys. But in Matthew chapter 18, what we see is that the keys are not just given to Peter, not just given to the apostles, but the, the whole church, as a gathered assembly, where two or three are gathered, the whole church possesses the power of the keys. And whatever, it says this in verse 18 whatever you bind and loose. And the, the word you in verse 18 is plural. Okay, so like if we were in Texas, we would say whatever y'all bind and loose on earth will be bound and loose in heaven because the, the word there is, is plural. The whole church is practicing this. Okay, so that's who holds the keys. We find it's, it's the gathered assembly. Second question, what do the keys do? Well, we know from both passages that they bind and loose but more specifically, what does this binding and loosing mean? Well, according to Matthew 18, they give the authority to set someone outside the church and regard them as an unbeliever. That's important to note that, that the keys don't actually make someone a citizen of the kingdom, and they don't remove someone from being a citizen of the kingdom, but the, the keys simply make a judgment call or they regard someone as being in or out of, of the kingdom, to make a judgment call about it. Okay, now, question number three, and this is important. What might we conclude about the keys if we combine Matthew 16 and Matthew 18? Okay, what, what would we conclude if we put these two pass- passages together? Well, we would conclude this, that the power to wield the keys seems to be the authority of the the church to recognize a true confession and a false confession. Let me say that again. It seems to be that the power to use the keys is the power and authority to recognize a true confession and a false confession. Right? Because Matthew 16, Peter's confession is at the heart of the whole discussion. basically Jesus is saying to Peter, because of your accurate confession, I'm going to build my church and and give you the keys. Okay, Peter's confession is, is central. But then you get over to Matthew chapter 18, and you've got this individual who's confessing Christ, but the church has the power to say, no, based on your unrepentant sin, we don't think your confession is a legitimate confession. So we might say it this way, that the keys... That are given to the church are the authority to recognize a true and false confession and a true and false confessor. Okay, let me say that again. The keys given to the church are the authority to recognize true and false confessions and true and false confessors. Now, let's just pause here for a moment and remember why we're unpacking these particular passages. Because I asserted at the beginning of our study this morning that church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a member that consists of the church's affirmation of the individual's profession of Christ. So I asserted that the church has the authority to say yes, we recognize you as a genuine follower of Christ, or no, we don't recognize you as a genuine follower of Christ. And when a church makes such a statement They are wielding the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So we begin to see something of the scriptural support for our membership definition this morning. Now perhaps you're sitting there thinking like, okay, I could be persuaded, but I like need a little more help being persuaded. Are there any other scripture passages that that might come into play here? And the answer is yes. Yes. Now, what if we had a clear statement of who receives the keys and what they are, like we do in Matthew 18, but then we also had examples of the church making judgments on what is a true confession and what is a true confessor, or what is a false confession and what is a false confessor? Well, we have a couple of examples in the New Testament, but I want to take us to two that are particularly helpful. So let's note two examples. Turn in your Bibles over to our scripture reading passage of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Now, I think it's helpful to remind us of the context of the book of Galatians. Paul has just recently returned from a missions trip in the Galatian area. And he saw God do amazing things. You can read about this in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. Now, he and Barnabas, they nearly lose their life for the sake of of the gospel. But... Through their efforts, the gospel goes forward. People come to Christ. Churches are established. And you get to the end of chapter 14, and, and elders are established over these, over these churches. Like I said, you can read that at the end of Acts chapter 14. But, shortly after Paul returns home, he catches wind of the fact that false teachers have arisen in some of these churches that they just planted, and that these new believers are being told by the false teachers that faith alone and Christ alone is not sufficient for their salvation, but they also need to bring themselves under the Mosaic law, especially the law of circumcision. Now, this was no minor controversy in these churches. In fact, it was a denial of the true gospel that Paul had preached. So he writes this letter, and he admonishes them and warns them in in the truth. But what's helpful for us is to notice First of all, who Paul addresses and what he exhorts them to do in light of this controversy. Okay, so, so notice verse 2 and we see who the Apostle Paul addresses. He says in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me, and he says this, to the churches of Galatia, Okay, to the gathered assemblies in this region. to the the members, to the believers there in Galatia. Not to the pastors, not to the deacons, but he writes to the whole churches this letter warning them of false teachers. But also notice what he tells them to do in verses 8 and 9. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now notice what the church as a whole, verse 2, has the responsibility to do in verses 8 and 9. They have the responsibility to assess what's being taught before them and to judge whether this is a true confession or a false confession. Is this a true gospel or is this a false gospel? And they have the ability to render a verdict on whether it's a true gospel and a a false gospel and even using the power of the keys pronounce a judgment on the fact that this is a false gospel. Because that's what the power of the keys do, right? They, they give the ability, and the power to judge whether a confession is true or false. So the whole church is involved in, in assessing this confession and pronouncing a judgment, yes or no, binding or loosing whether this is true or not. Now turn to one more passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now you are, are familiar with this passage, and we'll come to it in, in the weeks ahead. And it seems like every other week we're in 1 Corinthians 5 when we talk about membership. Okay, so we won't take the time to read this passage, but, but you know this passage as, uh, as a, a man living in open and unrepentant sexual immorality. The church knows about it and has done nothing about it. But Paul has already pronounced a judgment. Right? Look at verse 3. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced a judgment on the one who did such a thing. But notice, Paul doesn't just remove this guy or take it upon himself to remove this guy. Rather, what he does is he leaves it in the hands of the congregation, the gathered assembly, to make the call on this guy. So notice what he encouraged them to do in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, or we might say when two or three are gathered, Matthew chapter 18, when you are assembled In the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit, present with the power of our Lord Jesus, okay, the power, we might say, of the keys, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Or in other words, you are to set this man outside your assembly. You're to render a verdict saying, we are loosing this man, not recognizing him as a citizen of the kingdom. Now, Now, why did Paul do this? Why didn't Paul just pronounce... a a, a judgment on there well paul's not always going to be around so he's preparing churches to make these kinds of judgments apart from apostolic authority and he also knew that the church had the authority to make this call on who was in and who was out the church had the authority to to make an assessment of a of a confessor and to distinguish whether it was a true confession or a false confession Now, notice the end of this chapter in verses 12 and 13, and it sums it up, or verses, yeah, verses 12 and 13 sums it up for us. Paul finishes, and he says this, for, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? And the, the, the anticipated answer there is, I, I don't. It is not those, is it not those inside the church that you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, notice two things about these verses. First notice that the church has the responsibility to judge. The church has the responsibility to make assessments of who is in and who is out based on one's confession and life of obedience or disobedience. The church is not planet fitness. okay? The, the church is not a judgment-free zone. Okay? The church has the responsibility and the church has the authority to hold each other accountable and to pronounce judgments on whether someone is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. But notice also about this passage, the church can only make a judgment about who is in and who is out. They, they can't actually make someone a citizen of the kingdom and remove them as a citizen of the kingdom. Basically, all they can say is, based on the evidence before us, this is the judgment that we make. So it's much like a judge renders a guilty or not guilty verdict in court. The judge doesn't make the person guilty or not guilty. The judge simply says, based on the evidence before me, here's the proclamation or assessment or judgment that I make. And that's exactly what the assembly, when they're gathered together, has the responsibility to do to make judgments about what is a true profession of faith and what is a false profession of faith based on the evidence before them. The church, in, in using the power of the keys, essentially has the responsibility to guard the, back, to guard the front door and to use the back door. Okay? The church has the responsibility to guard the front door and be careful about who it brings into membership to make sure that they're, they're, they're as best as they could tell, followers of Jesus Christ. And when people don't live as they should, the church has the responsibility to exercise the back door, removing people whose professions do not seem genuine. One person put it this way, because false professions, if they're allowed to to stay within the church, are the suicide of the church. Because false professors elect false teachers who then do even more damage to the church. So the, the church, in exercising the power of the keys, guards the front door and uses the back door. They have the power to say, yes, we think you're a genuine follower of Christ, or no, we don't think you're a genuine follower of Christ. All right, let's, let's tie it together now, okay? Let's, let's go back to our original opening statement, agree or disagree if you call yourself a Christian, but you're not a member of the local church you regularly attend, you might be going to hell. Agree or disagree. Now, what's interesting about that statement is you probably agree with the first part and you probably agree with the third part, but you're not sure about the middle part. Right? You might say, a person may profess Christ, but based on what you put in the blank, they might be going to hell. So a person might profess Christ, but they're a mass murderer, you might be on your way to hell. Or they're a serial adulterer, they might be on their way to hell. But a failure to join the local church as a member, so they might be on their way to hell, you're like, ah, I just don't, I just don't know if I'd put... I'd fill in the blank with with that particular statement. So so why why would I think this statement is is true? Well, many people are self-deceived about what it means to be a Christian. Just this last week, I I met a kid. He was wearing a, a, a sweatshirt, and it said, Made in His Image. And I had seen him before wearing it, so I was like, oh, I want to strike up a conversation with this, with this kid. And so, I, so I, for some reason I began the question this way. I said, oh, I said, are you a Christian? And he said, yeah, I am. And I said, Oh, well, what church do you go to? And he gave me the name of the church that he attends. And I immediately recognized it as a church that does not preach a true gospel. See, many are deceived about what it means to be a Christian. But but let's say that they begin attending here as uh, you know and and they're they're deceived about about what it means to be a Christian but they begin attending here and they, they like it and they hear us talk about the membership class and they're like, "Well, that sounds good. I think I'll I'll join." And then it comes time for them to do an interview before they become a member. An interview with a with a pastor or or deacon. And in that interview they they're asked this question, "Tell us about your profession of faith and how you've came to be a believer in Christ. And it becomes clear that they don't understand the gospel. They thought they understood the gospel. It becomes clear they don't understand the gospel. And so we share the gospel with them and they come to Christ and they get baptized and they become a member. But what if they kept attending and never never pursued membership? And they remained self-deceived and they continued on their way to hell because they never put themselves before the judgment of a congregation for the congregation to say, we recognize you as either being in or outside of the body of Christ. So because they never pursued membership and put themselves before that judgment, then they might be on their way to hell because they, they continue to be self deceived. Now at Maranatha we have had this scenario play out on a number of occasions where people have visited. They thought they understood the gospel. In the membership class and interviews go through the gospel in more detail and it becomes evident this person's not a gospel uh, follower of Jesus Christ and sometimes they turn in repentance and faith and sometimes they they don't turn in repentance of faith but it's that pursuit of membership that the Lord uses to see people come to Christ. So if you're not a member of the local church you regularly attend and you've never had to put yourself before the judgment of a body to exercise the power of the keys and say yes or no, then you might be on your way to hell. You might be self-deceived in what you think it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've never actually repented and believed in the gospel. Now, two applications or implications. Notice that the authority and the responsibility of the keys, okay, in making these assessments is given to the whole congregation. Okay, 1 Matthew 18, the whole church, 1 Corinthians 5, the whole church, Galatians 1, the whole church. So that means that you are responsible, as a a member of this local church, to weigh in on, to to know the gospel well enough, to know the people well enough, to make assessments about what is a true and false profession. We all have the responsibility to guard the front door and use the back door. It's not just the leaders. It's, It's all of us who have this responsibility. And secondly, if the, church, if the church is going to practice this type of care and responsibility of its members, then it assumes we will know each other intimately enough to make such judgments. Okay, So it assumes that, that like, the, if we were only to talk about these ideas in terms of like, discipline and, and kicking someone out or bringing someone in, then we've missed the picture because the, the, the bringing someone in or the, the, the removing someone is just a snapshot of what the whole life of the church is supposed to look like where people care for one another and know one another intimately. And so sometimes that leads to the exercising of the keys, but it comes in a context of the whole church knowing and caring and taking responsibility for one another. Now, this sets next week's study up on a T for us, because as our definition continues, this is exactly where we're going, right? So membership is a formal relationship between a, a, a Christian and a church that consists of three things. Number one, the church's affirmation of the Christian's gospel profession. But then number two, what we'll see next week, is the church promises to give oversight to the Christian to oversee their life of discipleship in a every-member-matters kind of way. And so we'll come to that next week in our study, Lord willing. Let's pray together, and we'll end. Father, we're thankful for our time together, and my hope is that it has been helpful for us to, to see our scriptural responsibility We're to know the gospel well enough to make assessments as to what's true and what's false, and we're to know one another well enough to, to call each other out in our lives to say whether someone's faithfully walking or unfaithfully walking. And so help us, Lord, to be convinced of our responsibility this morning, to, to own the duty of of caring for the affairs of the church. You really don't, you don't leave these things a, a, alone in the hands of pastors or church leaders, but you have given the responsibility for all the sheep to watch over one another and care for one another. So Lord, convince us of our responsibility today and then the implications that come from that as, as we study next week. And continue to build our understanding and, and help us to be faithful as we consider these passages. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.